to all of you who are joining us on Facebook Live. Uh, it's it's always, always neat to be able to communicate with people who are not in the room, so welcome to everybody who's watching, and we're going to start a new series today called Weakness in Strength, Weakness in Strength. So here's the idea. Uh, a lot of times when we read the Bible and we read about all of these different people, we read about Moses, and we read about all these, these amazing men and women of faith in the Bible, it's like we, we say, yeah, but that's them. Now, that's not us today. So, you know, this this person was a great person of faith, and they're, they're, there's something different about them. But they're not really like me. Uh, and we and we tend to distance ourselves from these people, and they they become almost like like mythological characters or superheroes or something, as if we as if they're not human somehow. Uh, but when we really read the Bible closely, we see in many of these people's lives all kinds of problems and weaknesses and frailties and even sin in, in some of their lives. And it just shows us that God uses all kinds of people, even you and even me. Uh, I love the passage in, uh, in the book of James that says, Elijah was a man just like us, using that as a, he's trying to use that as a way to inspire people to pray, like Elijah prayed. Elijah was a man just like us. And so rather than these people being so far away and we, that we don't relate to them at all, we need to take a closer look at their lives and see how we can relate to them even in their weaknesses, etc. All right, so today... Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at the, the frailties and failures of these people in the scripture. Today, we're going to look at uh, one character who you may not know and his particular problem that he experienced, and this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who we think of as this kind of, I mean, he comes out of the, in the wilderness and he's baptizing people and he seems like this incredibly powerful uh, individual who's very secure in his own his own calling, his own identity, and then he faces uh, execution. And we we tend to think of him as this wow, this incredible character in the scripture. Well, I want to show you a, a part of his life that's not often uh, read or or taught on. Uh, the doubt of John the Baptist. I'll give you a passage from uh, Matthew chapter 11, and there'll be a lot of little verses of scripture that'll come on the screen. You can take pictures if you want. Any of you wants the, the if you want the PowerPoint slideshow, I can send that to you as well. Just come and see me and I will do that for you. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses two to three. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? You see virtually the same thing in, in Luke's gospel as well. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And we're told there in Matthew and also in Luke that he is in prison. All right, so you say, well, what does that have to do with doubt? I don't know, and I understand the story. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background about John the Baptist and his ministry and his career up to that point where he asks two people there to go and ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? We know that John the Baptist is actually a distant relative of Jesus, 
Uh, you see this in Luke's gospel, in the Christmas story. Uh, you know that Elizabeth, who would be John's mother, and Mary, who would be Jesus's mother, that these two were cousins. They were somehow distant relatives. Some translations use the word cousins. Some say distant relatives, but they were related. And you recall that there was a visit that uh, Elizabeth, when she was, was expecting uh, the child who would be John the Baptist, there's a visit that she makes to Mary. And uh, when Elizabeth steps into the room, uh, the baby in her womb, John the Baptist, leaps. And it's, it's really interesting. Um, verse uh, 39 of Luke chapter 1. Uh, At that time, Mary got ready, hurried uh, to a town in the hill country of Judea. Uh, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Sorry, I said it in the reverse before. It's Mary visiting Elizabeth, not Elizabeth visiting Mary. Uh, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, again, she's pregnant with, with this boy who would be John the Baptist. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby uh, uh, leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she ex exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child who you will bear, referring to Jesus. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. It's an interesting commentary on uh, whether or not a baby in the womb is alive or not alive or a real person or not a real person, but it also shows that John, this little, little baby in the womb, apparently experienced this emotion of joy when he was in the presence of Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus. I mean, it's an incredible little story there in Luke chapter 1. But we know from this story that they're distant relatives, uh, so there's a bit of a connection there. And we know that John the Baptist is this prophesied forerunner for Jesus. So we see this in Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, even John chapter 1. Uh, and when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he has a particular look about him, which is a little bit like Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. He has that particular look, and there's language there that suggests that the writers are trying to make a reference to Elijah. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. And then the writer says, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 40, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Again, you see it in Matthew, you see it in Mark, you see it in Luke, you see it in John, uh, that, Jesus, uh, the, that John the Baptist is clearly this, this figure who would, who would usher in the coming of the Messiah. So he's the forerunner, he's introducing the world to this figure. And then we see uh, even further down, as we keep reading through the Gospels, we see the key moment between John the Baptist and Jesus. And this is when John baptizes Jesus in water. Uh, so Matthew chapter 3, uh, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And John tried to stop him. 
And he says, well, I should be baptized by you, and you've come to me to be baptized. I don't get it. And Jesus says, well, let it be so for us to, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John says, okay. And so you have this moment, and you see this in, in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and also in John's gospel, a little different, but you still see it. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he comes up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was open. You've got a supernatural thing going on. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven, this is my Son, whom I love with him, I am well pleased. See this in Matthew, you see it in Mark, you see it in Luke. The way John takes it, and this is really critical for you to understand for, for the subject we're on today. The way John uh, uh, writes it and the way he understands it is that John the Baptist was able to identify Jesus as the Messiah because of his baptism. So John chapter 1, verses 29 to 36, that's a good, nice picture. Uh, the next day, uh, John saw Jesus coming to him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's got it. He's figured it out. This is the one who I, I was talking about when I said a man comes after me who has surpassed me because he's before me. I myself did not know him. Key, key verse. But the reason I came baptizing in water was that so that he might be revealed to Israel. So for John the Baptist, this is the key moment when he baptizes Jesus and there's that supernatural sign, voice from heaven, the spirit of God appearing in the form of a dove. John says, ah, this is the guy. And John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So he's got it. He, he's a identified Jesus very, very, very clearly because of this, this event, this water baptism that takes place in his life. And the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. He sees Jesus and he says, look, the Lamb of God. So clearly, he is able to identify who Jesus is because of this moment, this powerful moment where he's baptized Jesus in water. This is not all of John the Baptist's career. He is he's also somewhat famous because he challenges a local politician. He gets right in a local politician's face and he challenges him very strongly about his own personal life. Uh, the politician was uh, one of the Herod uh, family, is Herod Antipas. And uh, Antipas had something going on with his, uh, his brother's wife, all right? You have, a, you have a, a list of Herods in the Gospels. Don't be all confused by that. But what you have here is Antipas, and Antipas was married uh, at the time to the daughter of an Arabian king. And the story goes that when they were en route, to, uh, when he was en route to Rome in about AD 29, he starts to get infatuated with a lady who we know as Herodias. In the Gospels, that's the way her name appears. Herodias happened to have been his brother's wife. 
So Herod Philip's wife, Herod Antipas, has eyes for as he's on his way to Rome in AD 29. And they enter into a relationship there and a, a, a they organize it so that, so that Antipas would divorce his wife and Herodias would divorce her husband and then Antipas and Herodias marry one another. We see this in Josephus, the historian, is a contemporary of Jesus. And uh, so what happens is that John the Baptist, he sticks his nose right in Herod's face in a very prophetic way, and he, he is not happy uh, with the way that Herod is living his life. Uh, so you see this in, um, uh, let's see here, uh, uh, Mark chapter, see, yeah, uh, where am I? Yeah, Matthew uh, chapter 14 and verses 1 to 12, you see this big challenge, uh, and he, he goes to Herod, and he says, it's not right for you to have your brother's wife. And there are other things, apparently, that John challenged Herod Antipas on. We see that in Luke chapter, um, uh, Luke chapter 3. He says other evil things that Herod Antipas did. But he gets right into this politician's face about his personal life. And what happens? He ends up getting uh, thrown in jail, right? So um, uh, if you go through the story in Mark chapter... Um, Mark chapter 6, for example, uh, and this is telling the story after it happened, after John the Baptist had been executed, we're, we're given the backdrop of why uh, Herod himself, Mark chapter 6, verse 17, had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound, and he had him put in prison. So he's imprisoned because of this woman, Herodias his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. And John got right in his face, and he said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias, this woman, she nurses a grudge against John, and she wants to have him killed somehow. She's not able to do so, but because Herod had this kind of fear of John and protected him and knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. And so it's, Herod's a bit, he's caught in a corner because John has a following, but his new wife can't stand John. And so Herod Here's John. He he kind of likes him. He's kind of puzzled by him. But finally, the time arrives, and this is this would lead to John the Baptist's execution. You've got a birthday going on, and by the way, there are some some religious groups that don't celebrate birthdays because of this story. A little strange, but they use this text uh, on his birthday. Herod Antipas gives a gives a banquet. Uh, for the high officials, the military commanders, the leading men of Galilee. And so the daughter of his new wife, Herodias, we know her to be Salome from the history books. Salome comes in and does a dance. And everybody loves the dance, right? And so the, the Herod Antipas is so happy. He says to the girl, maybe he's a little drunk at the time. We don't know. He says to the girl, you know what? Anything you want, I'll give it to you even up to half the kingdom, anything you want. Everybody's so happy with your dance, and I'm so happy with your dance. And so what does she do? What does she, do? she goes and talks to mama. And mama says, oh, I'm going to tell you what I want. And you know the rest of the story. She says, I want the head of John the Baptist. Ooh, it's a very, very grim story. Uh, but it leads ultimately to his, his uh, execution. But you have to follow the Gospels closely because you can see that, that uh, John the Baptist is put in prison quite early 
in the gospel records. And that's really important for you to understand. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, that's really early, right after the temptations of Jesus, when Jesus had heard that John had been in prison. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, uh, he, Herod the Tetrarch had him thrown in prison. That's Luke chapter 3. That's very early. So there's a great deal of ministry that John the Baptist did not see because he was locked up for getting right in the politician's face, which ultimately would cost him his life. Are you with me so far? So you've got to track with Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. You've got to put pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together to get a composite of this man's life because it's, it's not necessarily in chronological order really easy to follow. But here's the, here's the moment in his life that I want you to, to focus on. Um, so in John chapter 1, what does he say? He says, I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God, the Lamb of God. I mean, John has him, has him clearly identified as the Messiah, this figure that the Jews were waiting for for centuries who would deliver them from the tyranny of their oppressors and bring in everlasting righteousness. And, and, and he's, this is the one I, I have seen I testify this is the one. And yet when he's in that prison cell, he says, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? He's having, it appears, a moment of doubt. Now, before we get too hard on him and say, well, maybe he's thrown his faith away. No, it's clear he hasn't thrown his faith away because what he's saying in his question is, well, is Jesus really this messianic figure who was to come, or is there another who will come who will be that messianic figure? For some reason, he seems to have lost his focus. He seems to have lost his conviction that he had in John chapter 1, that he had in, in Matthew and Mark and Luke when he sees this baptism event. He seems to have lost that focus somehow, and he's questioning, wondering, is Jesus Jesus really the one or is there someone else who's coming? So it's not that he doesn't have faith anymore. He just wonders, is the figure of his faith the correct one? Say, well, why in the world would he do that? I mean, this, he was as sure as sure could be. Why in the world would he have this strange question? And you see the question uh, appear in, in Matthew. You see it appear in Luke. So why is it that he has it? Why, did, why is it that he has this moment of doubt? And I'm going to give you three reasons why that we can all relate to, even in our own lives in the 21st century. Number one, he had an expectation that wasn't really met the way that he thought it would be met. So the, the first issue with him would have been expectation. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, and you read about who the Messiah is and what the Messiah will do, Sure, sure, sure. On the other side of the New Testament, you know, we have the whole Bible today and we say, well, how can people miss this? How can people miss a passage like Isaiah 53? He was wounded for our transgressions and so on. How can they miss that that's the Messiah? Oh, they missed it all the time. In many ways, the people thought that the Messiah would be a conqueror, 
Uh, he would be, uh, uh, he, he would uh, rid the world of evil. He would bring in, a, again, an everlasting righteousness. And this is all true, and this will all happen. But the idea of a suffering Messiah was really not something that they were looking for. Even though, yes, you see the passages in the scripture, you see them in Isaiah, you see the Psalms, and you see all these things. Look, if you're, if you're under oppression all the time, you're probably going to gravitate more to the figure of this powerful Messiah to come. And probably this is the way that John thought of Jesus. I mean, he looks at him. He sees him baptized in water. He sees the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove. He hears the voice of God saying, this is my son. And he's, this is the Messiah. And what's he telling everybody to do? Starts with an R. He says, you better fix your life. You better repent because if you don't repent, judgment is coming. So the Messiah is here and he is going to make it right. So you're in big trouble was basically his message. You better get your life straightened out and you better show that you have your life straightened out because God, the kingdom of God is now at hand. So in his head, he's thinking judgment is coming. It's coming on evil. It's coming on, on political rulers. It's coming on everybody. And his baptism was therefore a baptism of repentance. Key word in his ministry. And yet the man who baptizes the Son of God is thrown into prison for standing up for righteousness. He gets thrown into prison and he doesn't get out. He's in there in prison, and I mean, if, if you were him, if I were him, we'd be thinking, well, wait a second here, the Messiah is in town. Why am I stuck in this prison? Why is he, has he not gotten me out of this prison? What, what's going on? I, I, I mean, I know who he is, but he, apparently he loses that focus, and I'd suggest to you that it could be because his expectation and the results that he had, they didn't line up. And oftentimes, we expect things of God, don't we? We expect deliverance from God. We expect provision from God. We expect healing from God. We expect this and this and this answer to prayer from God. And when our expectations are not met, what happens? Our vision, our spiritual vision starts to get a little blurry, doesn't it? We start to, we, our focus gets blurry and we start to wonder and we start to ask questions and that's normal because our expectations were not fulfilled. Second reason, simple, John the Baptist is isolated. That's what prison is. And any of you who've ever been to prison or any of you who've ever visited someone in prison you know very well what that's like. Has any of you ever done a visit in a, in a real prison before? So you know what it's like. I mean, you go in there, and uh, it, that's, not, that's not Disney World. Like, that's intimidating. You go in there, and they shut that door. That is intimidating. And probably when you go in there, and you're visiting people in prison, and they shut that door behind you, you're so thankful you're going to get out at the end of the day. Because they're not. And they're isolated from the, the broader culture. All they have is their little subculture in the prison. But the whole point of prison is you get them out of the culture. You punish them 
by getting them out and isolating them in this prison. And here you have John the Baptist, a righteous man, stood up for what was right, got right in the politician's face. He's doing his ministry. He has a very kind of prophetic call on his life. And yet he's in this prison and he's isolated. And when you're isolated, your head starts playing tricks on you, doesn't it? There's a psychological thing. And when prisoners are really, really nasty, what do they do? They put them in solitary confinement. Put them in a room and turn the lights off. And they, they isolate them. Because this psychologically, like you're, you were not made to be isolated from the human race, okay? When you put someone in solitary confinement, oh my goodness, yeah, that's a real good reason to lose focus. We don't know if John was in that type of, of situation, if he was completely isolated or not, but I would venture to say that Herod Antipas and his crowd were not particularly kind to John the Baptist. His wife, or his new wife, was waiting, waiting for an opportunity to take his life. He's, his expectation is not met. He's isolated. Same thing happens to us today. I have met many, many Christians and non-Christians. And when they are isolated from other people, they lose their focus. They lose their focus. Sometimes they're not even Christian people, but they just live isolated lives. And it's like they're, they're depressed, they're, they're just a mess because they're so internally minded because they, they, for whatever reason, they're isolated from everybody else. And I've met Christians who they try to do the solo Christianity. You know, they don't have a church home. The church for them is the internet or some star preacher or some book or whatever, and they think that they're growing. They're not growing. What they're doing is they're isolating themselves. And, and you see the same kind of thing, the lack of focus, the blurry spiritual vision. Oftentimes, I've seen a bizarre doctrine that people come up with when they're not part of a church culture. Expectation misplaced or misunderstood or not hit the way he wanted to. He's isolated. And the third reason, he is persecuted. And that's obvious. I mean, he's got the whole, the whole household of Herod. He's got Herod's new wife. Everybody's against him. They've thrown him into this prison. I mean, it's not like he's hanging around with Jesus and the apostles anymore, right? I mean, he's, he's being persecuted. He's being punished. And he was, wasn't doing anything wrong. I mean, he's serving God and he's being punished. He's being persecuted. You put those three things together in a recipe and you have a loss of focus that can occur, right? You say, well, today, does that really happen? I mean, in some places in the world, it most certainly does. We are very, very sheltered here in North America. We like to complain and say, well, you know, the laws are squeezing Christianity and in the U.S., is, you know, you can't say this, you can't say that. And, you know, in Canada, you can't do this, you can't do that. And we, we like to complain but we need to wake up and look at other countries in the world where it is illegal to be a Christian. Like completely, <laughs> the worst place in the world to be a Christian is North Korea. That is the absolute worst place. Uh, Pakistan, very, very bad. Like there, there are places in the world where if it is known that you are a Christian, you will lose your life, you will lose your family, you'll be thrown in prison, etc., etc. You will be persecuted to that measure. We experience it here to a very, very minor degree. How can we relate? Here's how I have seen it uh, in this culture. I have met many people 
who have felt a sense of persecution, not in the way that John experienced it, but they still define it as persecution. They say, I'm persecuted in my family because of my faith. Uh, I'm persecuted at work because of my faith. I'm ostracized. I'm made fun of. People talk about me behind my back. You know, I, I'm persecuted in my, uh, my business, my, in my job. Uh, you know, I want to change jobs because people know I'm a Christian and they say all these things about me or I stood up in a conversation for this principle and everybody's against me and everybody's talking about me and everybody's conspiring against me and I feel so persecuted. Well, that can cause a real, real loss of focus. I mean, that's very real in people's lives. I've seen it in the lives of uh, uh, when I've worked in, in small businesses in the marketplace, and I'm still doing that now. I do two days at the mission. You know what I found really interesting? You, you, you can test this, those of you who are in the marketplace. Um, when the boss is walking around and, you know, talking to people or whatever, uh, and when the boss leaves the room, have you ever noticed what happens? Everybody, when the boss or the department leader or the director or whatever, someone who's leading something, they're in the room, everybody's, you know, everybody's straight and everybody's smiling and everybody's, but as soon as the person's out of the room, you start to hear it. Now, maybe not from everybody, but you hear it from some. And you can always tell, you know, who, who just, just stand around the water cooler and wait for the boss to leave the room. Uh, just have lunch with your coworkers and see what the conversation is about the boss. <laughs> and then you will see. And sometimes the boss hears, right? And what, what happens when the boss hears? Sometimes the boss says, well, who cares? You know, I'll bring him into my office and fire them all and do the Donald Trump special, right? <laughs> or, or, <laughs> or, or maybe the, the, the boss might be really bothered by that, like might be really offended by that. Um, and and I've, seen, I've seen both in the people that I've worked for in the marketplace. Um, when I became a pastor, I naively thought that this did not happen in churches. Very naively. You know what I discovered? Boy, does it ever happen in churches. Wow, the same concept. So I, I thought, well, you know, the Christians won't do that when the, the boss leaves the room, whatever, the music director, the leader, the worship leader, the kids leader, the pastor, his assistant, his associate, the whatever, whatever leader, they're going to talk. Oh, I discovered this, that same thing happened. And I worked for pastors. I've worked for, oh, five or six pastors in, in my ministry before I became a senior pastor. And I worked for pastors who had it happen to them all the time. Wow, it got quiet. They had it happen to them, and I, I was really surprised. I actually worked for pastors where people came to me and started to talk it up about the pastor. And I was working for the pastor at the time. Ooh, I've seen that before. So they're doing the water cooler thing, the lunchroom thing, with me trying to test me to see if I will say, oh, yeah. He's really a, you're right. You know what, if I did that, I'd be in, that, that, you know, do, do you know what I'm saying? So that kind of thing, and I've worked for pastors. I remember one pastor that I worked for, and I've worked for five or six, so those of you who may know them, you're going to have to guess, okay? Uh, I, I remember working for one, and my goodness, this man faced it. And it wasn't a whole lot of people. It never is. 
But this man faced it. And, you know, it was like, it was so bad. The things that were being said about him were so bad that it really caused him to lose his focus. He was really jarred by it. And he would, he would, he and I would talk and he'd say, well, maybe what they're saying about me is true. I mean, maybe I'm this, this, this terrible person. Maybe it's true. And sometimes it's not the amount of people, it's who the people are that are saying it that can cause that blur. That, and it doesn't matter if you're a you know, pastor or you're leading. If you're leading something, someone's talking about you. And you have to decide how you're going to handle that when you hear it. But sometimes it can feel like, and I remember this one pastor, the sense of persecution that he felt uh, because of the talk that was, that was happening about him. Wow, it was really severe and it was so jarring to him and jarring to his ministry. But with, without fail, every single pastor that I served had that happen to them. And if you're leading something, you're in your marketplace, you're in your business, you're in your classroom, uh, you, you're coaching something, you're leading something. I don't care if it's two or three people who you're in charge of, who you're leading. That, that can be a reality that happens, and it can feel like this kind of persecution. Just, just you get this for free, okay, because I'm speaking from a church context, and I've heard it, I've seen it in a church context so often. Just, you get this for free, all right? Anytime that you have people who are together, and they're talking about somebody or something or it's somebody in the church. Or it's, they're talking about that person that in a negative fashion, negative critical fashion. They have not addressed it to that individual, which is usually the case. And they've got a little group of people around them and they're talking about the whole thing. There's a word for that in the New Testament. Okay, it starts with G. That's what it is. All right, so that, that's the word in the New Testament. I know that's strong. You get that for free today, okay? So, so it's a reality, and it's not, it's not only in the church context. Again, your small business, I see, I see it almost every week where I work. As soon as the boss is out of the room. So that can feel like persecution, and that can cause a person to lose their focus. So here you have John, and he's got persecution. It's not like someone's talking about him at the water cooler. I mean, they're pouring water on him. Do you know what I'm saying? The water is out of the cooler, and it's on him. I mean, he's facing execution. He's persecuted. He's isolated. His expectation might have been, well, wait a second. This is, this is the Messiah is in town. Why am I stuck in this crazy prison? There's something out of whack here. And he asks the question, are you the one who was to come? Or is there someone else? Now, there's also another thing that happens when you experience this kind of, uh, this perfect storm, expectation, isolation, persecution, you, you lose sight of who you are also. That can happen as well. Not only did his, did his focus blur about who Jesus is, implicit in his question is that he lost focus of who he is, who he was too. Because it's very clear when you read the Gospels, they ask John, who are you? Are you the Christ? They ask him. He says, no. They say, are you Elijah? Because there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that Elijah would somehow return. The Jewish people uh, uh, set up a place for him in the annual Passover feast. That's how seriously that's taken. So uh, are you Elijah? He says, no. They ask him, are you the prophet? 
because there's Old Testament references to a prophet that would come, a great prophet who would come. This is obviously referring to Jesus, but that's what they asked him. Okay, if you're not the Christ, if you're not the Elijah, if you're not the prophet, who are you? And he says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight paths for the Lord. He knows clearly who he is. But if he's asking the question, uh, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else, then he also doesn't know who he is either because he was the one who was supposed to bring in the Messiah. So he's lost focus on who he is as well. He's lost focus on his own calling, his own vocation, his own ministry because he was as clear as crystal as to who he was and who Jesus was. But he's lost this sense of his own identity, perhaps. Who Jesus is foggy. It's, it's, the focus is blurred. You can't say that the man lost his faith. That's way too extreme. But his focus is clearly blurred. Is yours? Are you in a situation where you've expected something from God and he did not come through for you. You may not have the courage to say to God to his face, you let me down. Let me tell you, he can take it if you said that to him. But you feel let down by God. You expected something from him. You did not get it. You are somehow in a, in a situation of isolation. Maybe it's your own doing. Maybe it isn't. But you are isolated. You have no close friends. You have nobody who you can connect with. You're, you're cut off, in a sense, from just, just being with people on a regular basis who you can be honest with, who you can connect with. You're, you're isolated. Are you persecuted? You know, is it water cooler persecution or is it worse? I mean, I have met people even in North American culture. They come from other places in the world and they have come here because their faith would have got them killed where they were. And it would have gotten them killed by their own families. I remember a man who came to our back-to-school bash last year. I'm still in touch with him a little bit. And that was his experience. He had to run from his country, run from his own family, because his interest in Christianity would have gotten him killed there. He was threatened. His family was threatened by his own family. So whatever your situation on the, on the spectrum of persecution... Wow, that can cause you to lose your focus. What's the answer? Jesus, when he hears this question uh, from uh, uh, John the Baptist and his, and his followers, uh, he gives this answer, um, uh, Luke chapter 7. Um, so at, the very time, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. There's telltale signs that the Messiah is in town. So he replied to the messengers of John the Baptist, you go back, go back to that prison and you report to John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive sight. You see Old Testament prophecy about this. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Bingo. That is, the, that is the signature of the Messiah. And then he finishes it with this sentence. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Wow. Or in some translations, I like this. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of 
me? Wow, why would you fall away on account of Jesus? I mean, why would Jesus, of all people, make you kind of slip away or, or a stumble on account of him? Well, because sometimes you face these moments, your expectation, isolation, persecution. He's, what he's saying is you tell John he's got to persevere. You tell John to hang in there. And then if you continue to read the, the narrative, he has he has many positive things to tell that crowd about John the Baptist, about his character, about his personality, about his ministry, about his calling. He's, he's praising, in a sense, John the Baptist to this crowd uh, and, and citing him as an example. But still, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Are you falling because of Jesus? Are you slipping away because of him? Do you have enough honesty to admit it? Oh, if you do, you're kind of like John the Baptist. Go figure. The man who was so clear, the man who said, I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, even asked the question, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? I'd like the musicians to, to come to the, the platform, and they're going to get ready to, to close us in a song. But I'd like to pray with you, if you'd stand with me, please, and they're going to go ahead and start playing in the background, uh, even as we pray together. I really believe that this message is for so many people. And so many people, you know, we're not, we're not willing to admit and really get honest with God about where we are really at with him. And maybe it takes a John the Baptist, you know, as, as intense as he was to see this, this frailty, this moment of frailty in his life, this moment where you peer into his mind a little bit and you, and you see this, this crazy question out of left field from this incredible man in the New Testament. Maybe that helps you to be honest with God. But I just want to have a word of prayer with you. And if you're in that spot and you say, oh, this is this is me, you know, and, and I, I just, my faith is hanging on a thread if I'm being really honest. Everybody around me thinks that I've got it all together. But to be honest with you, it's kind of hanging on a thread. And I just need the thread to be a little strengthened. And I just need God to, in his own special way, say, hey, hang in there and persevere. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. 